At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 63, Almost Everything You Wanted to Know About Largemouth Bass. Don't really have a, a sponsor or someone to thank for this podcast, just because I've been working on this podcast for so long, I haven't come up with somebody. So let's thank you, the listener. How about that? If you are listening to this now, this will be a timely podcast, as today is the vernal equinox. It is the first day of spring, and I want to give my shout out to my dad. If it wasn't for him, I don't know if I would have gotten into fishing for bass. Like I said on previous podcasts, I grew up in Reston, Virginia, and we have a bunch of man-made lakes, and he used to take my brother and I down there when we were four and five years old, and that's when I started fishing for bass. Let me give you a little bit of background information on bass, why I'm doing this podcast, then I'm going to talk about bass phylogeny, describing the physical characteristics of bass, the key defining things that you can look at with a naked eye. You're not going to be sitting there doing a DNA sample to figure out if you got a largemouth bass when you're out fishing. We're going to talk about the location, where to find them through uh, different periods of the year. We're going to mention largemouth bass reproduction. We'll talk about what largemouth bass eat, so feeding. The tackle required to fish for largemouth bass. Fishing methods, and then we'll go into flies. And after doing this yesterday, I jumped up in the middle of the night and blotted down a bunch of doodles and some guesswork for a, uh, a weedless frog. And I will hit the vice as soon as I finish this podcast today and see if that's a viable fly for me to throw for largemouth bass and snakeheads this year. So let's talk about you know why I did this podcast. I've got nine pages of notes, 3,130 words. So sit back, put your legs up. Hopefully you don't have to shovel snow while you're listening to this. Uh, My other computer's frozen that I take my notes from. 
What else can I say? Uh, let's just pause. Well, while we're waiting, I'll give you some anecdotes. Over the weekend, we had the Project Healing Waters Ice Out event at the Rose River Farm down outside of Syria, Virginia. It's near Graves Mountain Lodge, and it was to host the members from all around Virginia. And some of the participants drove down from Walter Reed, where they're there having some surgeries due to their injuries. And we have World War Maybe there were some World War II vets. I don't know. But there were vets from Vietnam all the way through current. And we were fishing for largemouth bass in a farm pond that spring-fed with rainbow trout. And they were there were some big bass in there. So I finally caught a decent fish. And believe it or not, I know this surprised producer Jason as much. I caught a trout over the weekend. I caught about nine trout over the weekend. Rainbow trout. It's been a long time since that happened. Okay. Looks like the computer is back to wanting to play. So, um, largemouth bass. When I'm fishing for them with clients, I tell them that largemouth bass are like drunk frat guys. They want food. Me want food. I'm going to go out on a limb here and give you an analogy from a movie about drunk frat guys. No offense taken if you're a, a drunk frat guy, hopefully, but um, they want food. And this is from the movie PCU from uh, 20 years ago. So here is drunk frat guys wanting food. Yo, there are no chicks in here. What did I tell you? Yeah, man. There's not even any chips. Chips! 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 Chuck, Porterhouse. Ribeye, I know exactly how you guys are feeling. In fact, I can think of only one thing that could lift my spirits right now. Beer. 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 I think I'm missing a piece. Yeah, me too, man. Let's give up, huh? Guys, guys, we've got an L.A.-sized riot of thirsty men with no necks screaming for brew. And there you have it, a great scene from the movie PCU. You can see that on the YouTube under Chips, Chips, Chips from PCU. Now back to the fishing. I'm going to be a little redundant in here with some of the stuff I talk about. I'm going to go off on a tangent as if I hadn't done that already. Some say largemouth bass aren't very smart. Some say they're very intelligent. I'm going to go with um, that they're dumb, hungry ogres of the water. If you want to read a great book about largemouth bass, look up Carl Hyacin. He's a fly fisherman, writes or wrote for the Miami Herald. It's a book called Double Whammy, and it goes into the competitiveness of Florida tournament bass fishing. And largemouth bass are a billion-dollar-a-year industry. You don't have walleye pro shops and bluegill pro shops and crappy pro shops and steelhead pro shops. you got bass pro shops, a mega store just about bass bass are easy to catch they're almost everywhere they're not leader shy they're strong fighters and some of them have some pretty cool coloring as a fly angler we're not using all the technology of the conventional guys not using radar not using fish finders not using temperature readers you may call that a thermometer i'm not using depth readers sonar chum umbrella rigs sense or Massive hooks with these crazy weed guards with braided line and treble hooks and rattles and all this other stuff. It's a different ball game for us. Not using massive boats with all that technology 
and I don't have massive endorsements. I'm not making a lot of money doing this. Like the guys that wear the patches all over their shirts. Now, if somebody wants to start paying me some more money, I'm all open for that. I might even wear some ugly shirts with patches, but for the most part, no. So what I'm going to talk about, I already mentioned phylogeny description, location, reproduction, feeding, tackle, fishing methods, and flies. So let's start off with phylogeny. This is going to touch back on some several other podcasts. We did the brook trout with this. We did the maybe the striped bass, and then we did the different types of fishes podcast way back in the day. So let's talk about uh, the kingdom. Remember, King Philip came over from Great Spain. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Kingdom, animalia, they're animals. Phylum, chordata, they have a chordate. Their nervous cord goes through like a tube. Class, act- mm. class actinopterygii, order, Perciformes. Family, centrarchidae. So family, centrarchidae are the sunfishes, bluegills, crappy, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, some other bass, um, warmouth uh, war flyers, red-eyed Google bass, a couple others like that, red-eared sunfish, long-eared sunfish, pumpkin seed. The genus is Micropterus, and the species is Salmoides. The etymology of Micropterus Salmoides, and remember, due to Curlis Linnaeus's um, writings, it has to be Micropterus, the capital, the M has to be capitalized, and Salmoides, the S has to be lowercase. It either has to be italicized or underlined to set it apart as a separate language from the rest of the text you are writing in. It just has to do with Carol von Linné and his book of, uh, was it Systemics? I don't know. I used to know the book. So Micropterus is Greek. Micros, small. Who knows how small it goes into it, but yeah, it means small and petron is wing or fin so small finned fish is the genus and salmoides meaning trout like so it's a small finned wing like finned fish which is kind of odd because it's the largemouth bass but you have to remember that the common name of largemouth bass is a common name and not the scientific name of those that described it and those who described it were men back in the day because Women usually were not allowed into the whole scientific field. So some dude named Lesepidae, and I'm butchering his name, was the first to describe the fish in 1802. He gave it the scientific name Labrus Salmoides. Labrus. I should look that up because I want to be uh, accurate. Hold on, please. Well, that didn't work. I can't seem to find it. But Labrus is a genus of wrasses of uh, the Mediterranean. Okay, so that was 1802. In 1876, a dude named Nelson described this fish as Micropterus nigricans. And in 1878, some dude named Jordan or Jordan or Jordan, depending on where he's from, as Micropterus pallidus. And I pretty much have given up on getting to these Latin Greek roots because with all of the mess here, I cannot find my Latin Greek root dictionary from college, and it seems to be out of print. The thing is great. Uh, finally, in 1884, another dude named Forbes described the fish as belonging to Micropterus salmoides, which is currently the valid scientific name. There are two recognized subspecies, the northern largemouth bass Micropterus salmoides, salmoides, and the Florida largemouth bass Micropterus salmoides floridanus. Uh, he just said anus. Uh. 
1965, Smith, another dude, or it could be a lady because the 60s was a little more progressive, described the subspecies Micropterus salmoides salmoides, which in 1949, Bailey and Hubbs described a second subspecies as Micropterus salmoides floridanus. That was a little out of order, but then again, I'm not writing this for any kind of uh, official submission, so I can have mistakes. And it's a good thing I'm not uh, submitting this paper anywhere because it's been plagiarized and paraphrased. So thus, we have two subspecies, the northern largemouth bass and the Florida strain of largemouth bass. Also called black bass, Oswego bass, green bass, green trout, Florida bass, Florida or southern largemouth, and the northern largemouth. Now, the Florida and northern are going to come into play later on. They are the most popular freshwater game fish, as found all over the place and will eat just about anything. Research says they can distinguish lures from natural foods and thus not bite or hold on to what you throw at them. Largemouth bass are poikilotherms, which in Latin means varied temperature. Poiki means varied. It's an organism whose internal temperature varies considerably. So they are... Um, what we call those ectotherms, their body temperature is based on their surroundings. So if the Potomac River today is 38 degrees, the largemouth bass in there are 38 degrees. They're not deriving their body temperature from the food they eat, which is us. Remember way back in the day we did the podcast on cellular respiration and fly fishing, that you breathe oxygen, you consume glucose, and those get broken down and switched around and Energy is lost in the form of heat. You also produce carbon dioxide and water. That's why you can breathe on your glasses to clean them or bog up a window. It's why a whole bunch of people in a room make it very hot and uncomfortable. It's also why the first thing you have to do in the morning is urinate because your body has been producing water all night through metabolic cellular respiration. We derive our energy from food and that is released in the form of heat and that's why you are 98.6 degrees it is the opposite of a homeotherm which is the same temperature an organism which maintains thermal homeostasis that is us so if a bass wants to warm up it's either got to find warmer water or solar energy sunlight cold-blooded so their activities based on the water temperatures above 80 degrees water above 80 degrees has less oxygen so fish will slow down Largemouth bass are active when the temps are in the 60s. That's their ideal feeding temperature. So four-mile run all winter, perfect temperature. Cold temperatures slow down their metabolism, their digestion, their nervous system, and their need for much food consumption. We're going to talk more about that later on. That has to do with, is it ethical to fish for largemouth bass in the wintertime? They will change their locations to stay out of sun if it's too bright or too hot, and cool off to go into the shade remember bass don't have eyelids they're not wearing coast of del mars they don't have hats so when it's bright and sunny their eyes either have to adjust or they avoid the sunlight altogether let's talk about physical characteristics of the largemouth bass they have a fusiform shape their body is a streamlined shape that is compressed at the sides and tapers more at the tail than at the head they have a lateral line, which is also known as their acoustico-lateralis. That is the series of pits that goes along the side that transfers vibrations to their inner ear so they can hear things and feel vibrations. 
The lateral line, which is distinct if you look close, has 63 to 69 scales. The maximum length of largemouth bass, 97 centimeters. You're going to have to do that conversion yourself. I don't remember how to do that. The common length is 40 centimeters. Maximum published weight, 22.2 pounds. And the unofficial maximum weight is 25 pounds. Larger fish are going to be coming from reservoirs. Those are places where these live rainbow trout is bait. 25.1 pounds from Lake Dixon, California. 26.4 pounds from Lake Tohopee, Caliga, Florida. The IGFA 22.3 pound record is from Lake Biwa, Shiga, Japan, 7-2-2009. I remember when that one was caught. The IGFA 24 pound record is from Montgomery Lake, Georgia, United States, June 2nd, 2009. That old fish from back in the day, the one you always hear about as being the world record, was 22 and a quarter pounds taken by George W. Perry in Montgomery Pond near Valdosta, Georgia in 1932. That fish may have been a hybrid. Now, if you want to determine the weight without using a scale, use this formula. Weight equals L times G times G over 800. L equals length in inches from nose to fork in the tail. The G equals girth in inches around the fleshiest portion of the body. W equals weight of fish in pounds. So the weight of the fish equals length in inches from neck to fork times girth, times girth, divided by 800. The dorsal spines have 10. They're 11 to 14 soft dorsal rays. The mouth is large. That's why they're called largemouth bass as their common name. But no one seems to call them largies. People always like to call smallmouth bass smallies. I refer to them a lot in just social media in general as largies. Why not? The maxillary or top part of the jaw extends beyond the eye. That large eye allows in a great deal of light. So that makes them a good predator. They can see a lot of things in low light conditions. I don't know if I mentioned this about my wife and I camping out on the Sino Canal one night after canoeing down the Potomac River, and the bass feeding night kept us up. It was insane. It sounded like people were just throwing potatoes and shoes in the river all night. The first and second dorsal fins are almost separated by an obvious deep dip. So that is one key to find a characteristic other than a big eye and a big mouth is that first slightly curved arced and then another shorter higher arced part to the fin pelvic fins are not joined by a membrane there are no scales on the soft rayed second dorsal fin green to olive dorsally milky white to yellow ventral that's known as counter shading so when a predator looks down on them or a little fish swimming by their top or dorsal will blend in with the bottom and when a predator or a prey item goes below them, their belly should blend in with the sky. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, 
no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With the black band of blotches running from the operculum to the base of the caudal fin. We remember that operculum means cap in Latin. That's the gill cover. To the caudal fin, which is the tail. Caudal fin is rounded. Females are larger than males. We know that is called sexual dimorphism. Males up to five pounds. Average lifespan of 16 years in the north and 11 years in the south. How fast can a largemouth bass swim? Well, their speed is 2.5 times their total body length per second. Small fish swim at 2 miles per hour. A 20-inch fish may swim in spurts of up to 12 miles per hour. They have binocular vision, which means the two eyes can see one object. They can see everything except behind and directly below them. So as you're listening to these, think about how you're going to be fishing a fly. You're not going to be throwing it directly behind them unless you want them to hear it or feel it. But they do have that vision in front of them. We trout, we always talk about the cone of vision, but not much has been described in the largemouth bass vision. It may take 20 minutes for their eyes to adjust to changing light. Most bass can see 5 to 10 feet in front of them depending on water clarity. Clear water allows sight up to 50 feet away. That's pretty awesome. The best sight focus is around 10 inches away. Red and white collars are easily seen by largemouth bass in shallow waters. Remember that red goes away the further you go from the surface when less sunlight can reflect off of it. Some more on the collar. The green collar also reflects the surrounding weeds in which they like to hide. Uh, yeah, caudal fin is rounded. It's the source of their locomotion and burst of their speed to capture prey. The tail fin also has a slight fork to it. Other fins are used to slow down the fish during prey capture. Sometimes they have a spot on that operculum with three horizontal dark green bars on their cheek. Olive brown modeling on fins, olive stripes and blotches. So all those colors basically help hide them to be ambush predators. Think about lions in grass. Now, I can tell you from experience on a safari, we had three lions that were eating an antelope maybe 10 feet from our land cruiser, and you could not see them. You could hear them ripping and tearing flesh and gnawing and blood splattering everywhere, but you could not see them. Same with like a baby deer, how it blends in with the grass or a cheetah. Um, Female birds are often drab colored, so they blend in with the nest. And the males are the colorful ones anyway because, A, they don't usually sit on the nest, except for the male ostrich. They're a darker black, so they can absorb more sunlight during the day and be warmer at night to warm up the eggs. But for the most part, a lot of animals are, you know, blended into their uh, surroundings unless they are noxious or poisonous and have that uh, coloration like a bee or a poisonous snake or a poisonous fish, etc. All right, let's talk about location of fishes. Largemouth bass are freshwater. They're benthopelagic, which means they hang out in the water just above the the bottom of the river or lake or pond. They prefer a pH range of 7 to 7.5, which is pretty basic. Uh, They can be in 0 to 7 meters or up to 18.8 feet deep. Prefer waters that are warm, around 80 degrees Fahrenheit, but that optimal feeding is at 60. Largemouth bass are originally from North America, from the St. Lawrence to the Great Lakes, the Hudson Bay, 
in the Mississippi River basins. Now every state in the U.S. has them. Atlantic drainages from North Carolina to Florida and northern Mexico. Northern fish, remember we said there's two subspecies, the northern and the Florida. Northern fish live longer but have shorter growing seasons. Southern fish live shorter lives but are active longer. So southern ones grow faster, quicker, and die sooner. Northern ones are going to live longer but grow slower. We talked about this with Brad Bowen in the Muskie podcast that some of those northerns, northern muskellunges, could be up to 30 years old, I believe is what we said. The species has been introduced widely as a game fish and is now a cosmopolitan. Like I said, it's a billion-dollar-a-year industry. Is it true that... um, Largemouth bass can be introduced via bird feathers. That's still up to debate, but like I said previously, our friends in the Catskills have a pond they dug out with bulldozers next to a spring, and it filled up, and they have this giant pond. They didn't put any fish in it except for some trout from a hatchery. But there's ducks and birds there and geese, and there's largemouth bass and bluegill. We will learn later about fish eggs, so that might give you an indication that, yes, it may be a a fact that birds are responsible for introduction of largemouth bass to new water sources. Not all introductions have been successful. They have not been able to establish reproducing colonies, and they are also detrimental in some places as they will eat native fish. They were introduced into the Potomac River in 1854. News flash to all you people think that snakeheads are eating your native largemouth bass. You are so wrong. The largemouth bass don't belong just as much as the much as the carp and the catfish and the snakeheads and the crayfish and the weeds and the goldfish and a lot of other things that people have put in the river. Remember, the native fish we're talking about in the Potomac are Striped bass, American shad, hickory shad, gizzard shad, some shiners, sturgeons, stripers, uh, maybe one catfish, and that's about it. There's actually not a whole lot of native fish that live in the Potomac River. They were introduced into Europe in 1883. Several countries report adverse ecological impacts after introduction. Introduced species in Europe reported to avoid fast-flowing waters and to occur in estuaries with a salinity up to 13 parts per trillion. So we're talking about largemouth bass can live in a saline environment. So the Potomac River from D.C. south is all tidal, which means we have salt water. It's brackish. They live in there. The ecosystems that they inhabit include lakes, river basins, zoogeographic zones, seas, bays, and gulfs. Adults inhabit clear, vegetated lakes, ponds, swamps, and backwaters, and pools of creeks and rivers. They're usually found over mud or sand and common in impoundments. They prefer quiet, clear water with overgrown banks. Remember, their eyes are sensitive to sunlight. They can't blink. They can't squint. They can't wear Costa Del Mars. So they're going to be under those shaded trees and by stumps and other structure where they can either ambush their prey and avoid sunlight. They survive in cool areas of some highland dams where they were introduced as sporting fish. They may school in groups of two to three when larger, but they're mostly solitary. Larger bass spend more time in depths due to low light and safety. So they're going to feel safe where they're out of the, the grasp, grasp of birds and snakes, birds, snakes, and airplanes, 
and they're also going to be where it's more comfortable for their eyes. Now, if we start putting um, Bryce Harper's contact lenses on them that are shaded, maybe we can get largemouth bass to be in brighter water, but I don't know. Or maybe somebody wants to do a hybrid with uh, something that has poor eyesight or that can see well in the sunlight. I don't know. Let's talk about feeding bass. They tend to be the apex predator in their environment. They tend to have a home range of a certain distance they travel and follow particular trails underwater. They have a regular hunting ground where they will go through feeding lanes regularly in search of food. Thus, they may have an established hunting feeding territory to defend. Voracious predators are due to instinct. They eat what moves. They eat live prey. You're not going to go out and catch a largemouth bass on bread. They eat live prey. They eat what moves. They tend to eat more when sensing a storm is near. Bass feed at the same time each day, usually twice, in accordance with the moon phase. Bass rely partly on nostrils to draw in scent molecules. Remember that molecules in the water are much more dissolved and thus they can pick up a slight trace and hone in on that, much like uh, you know, a shark is very highly sensitized to the scent. But molecules in water are easier to detect. That's why mammals that need to smell things have wet noses. Deer and dogs have wet noses, cows, because molecules diffuse across a wet cellular membrane faster than they do across a dry one. They do it, it's facilitated with moisture. So things in water, you can smell better. They draw water into their mouth and prey gets sucked in. So it's suction feeding. The prey stays in their mouth and water is expelled through the gills. They have some crunchers in the back. They can break and crush the prey to kill it. Now the size of their mouth limits the size of the prey and the ability to close their mouth before the prey can escape. This is the one fact I've been trying to find. I read it years ago and it had to do with the distance away that a largemouth bass can feed. And one of the reasons this podcast if you follow me on Facebook and other social media, took so long to write is I was trying to find this one thing. I'm going to say, don't quote me on this, that largemouth bass can suck in water from 8 to 12 inches away, and that bluegill have to do it from 1 to 2 centimeters away, which is why bluegill will come up and smack your dry flies, whereas a largemouth bass can kind of just come up and it looks like a toilet flushes and the water just plunges down and they suck in the prey. So they can inhale food from several inches away, with water going through their gills, prey stuck in the mouth, which is either swallowed or spit out, depending on if they think it's viable food. Swallow head first, so gills and arms go down easy. Bass rely on sense of taste and mouth touch to determine whether or not to spit out food. You hear a lot about fly material and whether bass feel that it is natural enough feeling. They'll kind of peck at it. You know, steelhead, trout, what kind of mum, 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 mum. So those fish are going to come up and kind of peck at it. Largemouth bass are going to come up and engulf and inhale the food. All right. Bass ordinarily isolate a specific victim and then attack it as it is more prone to select a prey that appears disabled or looks different from the others. So they don't want to have to expend more energy than they're going to gain. So... They don't want to burn 50 calories if they're going to get 20. They want to burn 50 if they're going to get 100 or 150. But then again, 
that means you're eating some kind of nasty, rotten, I don't know. But yeah, they eat it. So, uh, largemouth bass will race to consume prey when food is scarce and metabolism allows it. So if it's cold and you put something in front of their face, they'll probably eat it. If it's warm, they'll probably eat it. If it's five feet from them, a cold fish, probably not going to go for it unless it is worth that metabolic gain. If not hungry, they may just strike out of instinct, protecting young, something's moving. Thus, a bass may strike with a fish sticking out of its throat. We've seen crayfish sticking out of bass's throats. I've caught fish with other fish sticking out of their throats. Sometimes there are pike and there's the Trout Bum Diaries, Mongolia, where a taman washed up on shore with a Lennox that was like 26 inches stuck in its throat. And Holt has never seen the Trout Bum Diaries. So I'm going to have him over one night, hopefully. We're going to watch the Patagonia one. They swallow prey, hole and big gull. Bigger fish eat bigger prey and tend to avoid smaller prey. Though I can say that is not always the case because I caught about a three-pound largemouth over the weekend on a damsel nymph. I've had clients catch four-pound largemouth on the damsel nymph. And if you haven't gone to YouTube, the damsel nymph is now up. The snow white damsel. Fish it. You'll be glad you did. Uh, they use their sense of hearing sight and vibration detection and smell to attack and seize the prey. Use internal ear and lateral line to detect food in low light. So be quiet. You don't want to be rustling branches, vibrating your boat. You don't want to be dragging your feet, kicking things. When you're fishing, you're hunting. And I tell my clients, if I can hear you, they can hear you. I don't want you making a wake when we're waiting. I don't want you dropping things in the boat when we're out on the boat. And the new boat should be here any day. So excited. Stealthcraft boats. What else do we have? Uh, yeah, so don't don't be talking too much. Don't be playing music in your boat. Just be quiet. They'll expend less energy to feed if ambushed during low light. They are crepuscular, which means they're like deer. Low light, early morning, late afternoon, overnight. They usually grab large prey, then turn the food to swallow it head first. A bass 10 inches or longer has very few enemies and will eat almost anything it can swallow. Because of the bass's large mouth and flexible stomach, it can eat prey nearly half its own length. Bass over 12 inches feed mostly on crayfish and smaller fish. If I had a little dinger here, ding, 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 that's when you should be like, okay, crayfish patterns and baitfish patterns. Their appetite increases as metabolism increases. If it's too hot, they will stop feeding above certain 80-degree temperatures. Less oxygen, it's too exhausting for them to move. Most active feeding between 70 to 75, depending on the variety of bass. They do not feed during spawning. They do not feed during spawning. They do not feed during spawning and may die from malnourishment and body breakdown. Don't fish for spawning bass. Don't fish over spawning bass. They're not eating out of hunger or um, instinct. They will bite your fly out of instinct to protect their offspring. They're not eating at all. Their bodies are torn up from the spawning process. Their bodies are exhausted and they are running on uh, empty. So when you pull a fish off there, it's expending energy to fight you that it needs to protect the young. 
So two things here. This is probably going to be redundant. Straightening my arms out, pulled up my sleeves, cracked my knuckles. When you fish for bass on the spawn, you exhaust them, which may kill them. And when they are pulled off their nest, you are allowing predators to come in and eat their eggs. So thus, you are decreasing the next several years worth of bass fishing for yourself. They may pick up items to move outside of the nest versus aggressively defending them. So they might just try and pick up your fly and drop it. But you're going to set the hook and you're going to pull them out of the water and then they're going to exhaust themselves, burn through their remaining resources of glycogen, their fat, and you are going to allow their nest to be vulnerable to whoever wants to come in. They do not feed when water temperature is below 41 degrees. They do not feed when water temperature is below 41 degrees. They do not feed when water temperature is below 41 degrees. Why? Because their metabolism is too slow. They can't even digest the food. So if they're biting out of instinct these last couple months when you're fishing for them in lakes, ponds, and rivers, you're probably killing them. You release them. And they've spent all that remaining energy that they've been storing up to sit there and breathe and locomote. And they just burnt it all fighting your line. And now you're going to drop them in. They're going to go down to the depths and roll over and float and die. So congratulations. You got your fixing fishing fix on in the wintertime, but you killed the fish you were going for. Now, I was bass fishing over the weekend. That was a farm spring pond. That water is the same temperature every day of the year, regardless of ambient temperatures. It's a little bit of a rant. I get to do that. I'm here to educate you. So as a lot of people are posting, oh man, I had this winter fix. I had to go out and catch my largemouth bass. Yeah, well, you killed it. And we fished four mile run. Well, that water is 65 degrees Fahrenheit. So I can fish there over the winter. It's not killing them. Bass are fed upon by other fish. Yellow perch, northern pike, walleye, muskie, northern pike minnows, chestnut lampreys, and drums. The drums were South African. They have been eaten by drums in South Africa. I need more beltong, diplomatic immunity. When water comes in, uh, when winter comes, largemouth bass become very inactive, but do not hibernate. When winter comes, largemouth bass become very inactive. They concentrate in deep water and will continue to feed, although not vigorously. They will catch an available minnow, small bluegill, or perch, which are also rendered relatively inactive by their cold temperatures, and then take days, if not weeks, to digest it. It will take days, if not weeks, to digest it. So they, their metabolism is so slow that like the Sarlacc in Return of the Jedi, it's going to take them a very long time to digest. So they think they're going to be getting food and slowly digesting and gaining net energy over the winter. But in fact, you screw them by throwing a, a Senko or a Clouser Minnow or a Clawdad in front of them and pull them out and they burned up all their energy. Like I said, we're going into some politics here and some of the ethics of fishing for bass. So when winter comes, they, okay, let's skip over that. The depth of the body of the prey must be less than the mouth width of the bass. Bass in weedy waters grow more slowly due to the difficulty in acquiring prey. They're in a tangle of masses and just don't feed as often. 
Less weed cover allows bass to see more easily and find and catch prey more easily. Bass in open water or water with little to no cover will eat all their prey and can starve. Let me say that again. Bass in open water or bass with little to no cover will eat all their prey and they can starve. So they will just be voracious and just eat everything. And then they're like, oh, you know what? I have nothing left to eat because I ate everything in my surroundings. That's what largemouth bass do. Wide variety of food items. So take notes from detritus. We're talking about plank, uh, like leaves and stems, acorns, plankton and nectin. Nectin is the aggregate of actively swimming body of water. Actively swimming in a body of water. Usually oceans or lakes able to move independently of water currents, i.e. larval mollusks or crustaceans, i.e. scuds and shrimps and vertebrates, fishes. We confer to this as zooplankton. So they eat zooplankton. Adults. You are fishing for adult largemouth bass. Now, you might get juveniles, but for the most part, adults. Feed on, drum roll, a variety, which has increased as they have been introduced to more exotic locals. Sunfishes, minnows, carps, and roach. Catfishes, shad, sticklebacks, trout, perch, mullet, sculpins, silversides, gobies, blennies, tilapia. And I went ahead and I took the Latin names of all those and put them into common terms for you. Makes it easier for all of us. Crayfish, frogs and toads. Remember, toads are frogs, but frogs aren't toads. And tadpoles, gastropods, which means stomach foot. So those are going to be like uh, mussels and clams. Birds, small mammals from rodents to bats. They'll eat turtles, snakes, snails, worms salamanders you know that rubber salamander that works for all the bass guys and they're also known to baby alligators so if you were a fly in the wall right now in my house you would notice that the laptop i'm using to record this is on its side i guess i'll post a picture of this on instagram because the battery just died and the only way it's going to hold a battery is if the cord is pushed in so this kind of sucks right now Go buy some flies on my website. Let's help this guy get a better equipment for doing podcasts. Maybe we can get a company to front one for us. Who knows? But yeah, so um, this podcast is actually only right now 42 minutes long, but it's taking me two hours because the computer likes to die. So where was I? Sometimes largemouth bass are cannibalistic. Juveniles feed mainly on invertebrates, crustaceans, plankton, and insect larvae, and small fishes. Juveniles greater than 5 centimeters become almost exclusively piscivorous, meaning they feed on other fishes, but also feed on frogs and some crustaceans, fish, eggs, and larvae. We've gotten largemouth bass on red beads before when we're fishing for carp in the wintertime, so they do eat eggs. Um... These guys are dusk and dawn feeders. They feed in schools, chasing their prey near the surface and in zones with vegetation. I call them little gangs of bass. So we'll be out on the lake in Reston, and in the middle of the water, you'll just hear like, plop, 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 plop. and it looks like there's a big fish trying to eat a whole bunch of other things, but then you get the boat closer to it, and then you realize, no, it's actually about nine or 11 uh, fingerlings that are just chowing down on some midges out in the middle. Safety numbers, I guess. Reproduction. Let's talk about fish doing it. 
Largemouth bass are dioecious, meaning different houses. So humans are dioecious. Some plants are dioecious. You have a plant with a male flower and a female flower. So males have male genitalia. Females have female genitalia, except around here when you have intersex species due to the hormones in the water. Spawning takes place spring to summer or when water temperatures reach 59 to 75 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit. In North America, spawning occurs in May through August. In Europe, spawning occurs April to June. In Hawaii, June, I'm sorry, January, January to March. In France, March through June. Pre-spawn means males start to move out of deep waters when temperatures reach 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, is it ethical to be fishing for bass during the pre-spawn when they're just metabolically ready to feed, and then we go and start harassing them, and they're basically trying to rebuild their fat resources so they can go spawn? So is it ethical? I don't know. The more I'm doing this podcast, the more I'm realizing a lot of what we do to bass, I mean, it's great for putting fish in the boat, but it is detrimental in the long run to the bass populations. If I'm pausing, it's because I keep having to turn my head to make sure this thing is recording because I can't actually see the screen right now. All right. The metabolism will speed up, making them feed for the first time. They will feed generously for the first time in several months. Mature fish one to four years, depending on latitude, so they're sexually mature at one to four years. Adults mate between the ages of five to 12 years, and they'll do it younger in the south. And I mean, do it. I actually mean they do it when they're younger in the South. Simultaneous, simu, si, simultaneously, simu. At the same time, males and females will fertilize. So, fertilization of 10,000 to 25,000 eggs or a fecundity of 17,501 to 21,751 on average eggs per female or 10% of her body weight. Females average 4,000 eggs per pound. Females will spawn more than once and will split their eggs up to use on multiple occasions to include up to one month later. A female may spawn with several males on different nests to ensure her progeny will not be wiped out if there is one issue with a nest. So if the nest gets all raided by bluegill, she knows she has to lay eggs in other nests to ensure that she passes on her genetic information. These are known as insurance policies. Sort of like the blue-footed booby in the Galapagos that only lays two eggs, but only one's going to survive. So the bigger one will eventually just push the younger one out of the quote-unquote nest, which is just a ring of guano. The second one's an insurance policy in case the first one dies. They always lay two, only one's going to live. Males become aggressive and territorial and will guard a six-foot radius around the nest or until they can't see another male. So it depends on water clarity. Nests may be up to 30 feet from other nests so the missus doesn't stray. They don't want the female getting the whiff of another dude who's got a nice fancy nest waiting for her. Males build a nest that's two times its body length on muddy bottoms of shallow water by fanning its tail. Nests are located in backwaters and pools of streams and along the shore in ponds and reservoirs, lakes in shallow coves and bays on the north side where more sun shines to warm the water and out of the wind 
in one to four feet of water. Depth of up to 20 feet in clear water where sun can penetrate and warm that water. Remember, the metabolism is based on temperature and spawning is based on temperature. So they don't want to be spawning down there if it's too cold, which is why there's no shad in the river yet because it's March. We just had eight inches of snow on Monday, which is now gone. So eight inches of ice water in the river and another snowstorm coming this coming Tuesday. So when the water keeps getting this cold, they're going to hold off on their spawn. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Males bump the females to release eggs and may circle around her to keep her around longer to spawn again. Females lay yellow, amber, or orange spherical sticky eggs in open nests where she senses the temperatures are warm and consistent. She doesn't want those waters changing temperatures and killing her young. And I said sticky eggs, so maybe they're sticky enough to stick to a bird's feather. The male guards and fans the eggs to keep detritus free. You want those eggs not to be covered up because they have to exchange gases and water with the surrounding environment. Males will guard the eggs and nest for about 29 days, then abandon for deeper water. 20,000, I'm sorry, 2,000 to 12,000 fry hatch from each nest. Of these, only 5 to 10 are likely to survive to reach a size of 10 inches. So when you take the male off the nest, you really are killing the nest. If only 10 out of 12,000 are going to make it to be 10 inches, you're really messing with your fishing. Viable eggs will hatch in two to four days in the south with regards to water temperature. Most eggs are lost to predation by other sunfishes. Controlling bluegill populations, which means reducing them, will allow for more bass and larger bass. So when you're on a bass pond and someone tells you to kill all the bluegill, because they don't want them raiding all the nests. Males will abandon the nest if water temperature drops below 60 degrees. They just know it's not viable. The fry will feed on their yolk sac for the first few days. Fry will develop mouth parts after about 190 hours. That has nothing to do with Aaron Ralston's movie. And begin to feed at 8 days old or 2 inches long. Males will guard fry for 2 to 7 more days about the time the fry leave the nest. Young cohorts and cohorts are organisms of the same species of the same age living together at the same place in the same time. Just an ecology term for you. Their cohorts will school together for feeding. Remember, safety numbers. The largemouth bass may form hybrid fish by spawning with smallmouth bass, rock bass, bluegill, warmouth, and black crappie. They will grow four to six inches during the first year. So I'll catch, my clients will catch fish and I'll tell them, oh, that's a one-year fish, a two-year fish, a three-year fish. You can tell a bass's age by the size. So four to six inches, one year. Eight to 12 inches, two year. 16 inches, three years. You can age a bass using rings on its scales as well. Like a dendrologist would use the rings on a tree. Or that's also how you can tell how old a person is. You, You didn't know that? Yeah, you can cut off a limb and count the rings. Works the same. Bass that are not caught are presumed to live longer. The largemouth bass may form hybrid. We're going to mention that. Let's take that out. 
All right. So that is uh, bass making other bass. Let's talk about gear. A five to eight weight medium to fast action rod is what would be ideal. I just picked up a new Gray's 10 foot six weight. I'll be using that a lot this spring and summer. You need a rig that's going to toss big flies, pull fish out of the weeds, cast in the wind, and be able to fight big fish. I was talking with Bill Dawson, who's the rep for Sage Reddington Rio, about a good rod for snake and snakehead and bass. And he, I thought it was going to be the seven foot bass rod by Sage, but he said I should probably go with the pike rod. So that's Bill Dawson's influence. If you want to really fish for bass, go with those. Uh, TFO Mangrove, uh, Orvis H2. Um, well, you know, they're all going to catch fish. It's just if you're going to do it with ease. I mean, you got to need a big stick. Floating line or sink tip depending on the fly. Do you need your fly to get down to those depths or do you need to be closer to the surface? Bass tapers, big bug tapers, or real outbound would be three excellent line choices. Clouser line also for throwing these big flies. You don't need a long head. Short, fat head is going to turn over your big flies, cast into the wind, pull your fish out. Leaders. Oh, also, any reel will do unless you are going for monsters. Now, if you read Zach Matthews' itinerant angler blog, yesterday he posted about the best reel for your buck, and he says it is going to be the Lamson Conic. Best bang for your buck. But once you get above eight weight, you need a hatch or nautilus. Those are his two suggestions. So that if that's any matter, I'm not getting any benefit. But hey, if you want to buy reels, go to Pro Guide Direct. I've got reels for sale. Help brother out. Leaders, eight to 10 pound range or more. We'll fish 14 pound because we don't know if we're going to get into snakeheads or some three foot long gar. Your leaders don't have to be too long. They should be abrasion resistant. Largemouth bass don't tend to be leader shy. Don't have to use fluorocarbon unless you want your leader to sink a bit more. You may also want stripping guards for your fingers for when a bass pulls line out or just for all that stripping of your flies in. You'll be doing a lot of work fishing for bass if you're on my boat. You're going to cast every three feet along the edge of the water pretty much all day. It's exhausting. Do not use that wrist when you're casting on my boat. Let's talk about fishing methods. First, where are you going to find them? Well, you listen to this whole podcast already, so you now know where these bass are going to be at different times of the year, at different times of the day, at different weather conditions. So let's go look for them. They're going to be out of the sun. They're going to be under overhangs, under docks, under boats, around rocks, in riffles, behind and around stumps, and around drop-offs. These fish don't have eyelids. They want to be in the shade, unless it's at night and they're out prowling. They want to be in these locations also because they don't want to be eaten by pelicans and uh, overzealous kingfishers, ospreys. we got a lot of ospreys around. You go down to the Occoquan, there are more ospreys down there than mosquitoes. I guarantee. These fish are going to be in oxygenated areas. In the summer, they're going to be in cool water. In the winter, they're going to be in warm water. They're going to be hidden. They're going to be backed up like creepy people waiting to mug you. They want to be in an easy ambush point where they can back in. So down here we have spatter dock, which is a type of lily pad. At high tide, they're going to be just backed into that. So anything that swims out in front of them, boom, they're going to go eat it. 
They're going to be right under those pontoons or right under those docks in the shade. When something moves by or falls in the water, boom, they're going to go eat it. And the depth, are they going to be down in the deep? Are they going to be up top? If it's too hot, are the fish going to want to expend the energy to swim to the surface to eat a popping bug? That's what you're going to have to play around with when you're doing this. Do you want to have an aggressive retrieve or strip, strip, pop, pop, tip, strip, strip, pop, pop, tip? Or do you want to have a nice, gentle retrieve where your fly is just gliding across the water, making the least amount of surface disturbance as possible? I go for the latter. Remember Matt Miles? We did the podcast with him. It was that night we were too full from pints of beer and massive burgers. We couldn't really talk. One thing he said is, James River Bass want that slow retrieve or just dead drift. Remember, bass will eat just about anything. It's an instinctive reaction of movement regardless of hunger. When sight casting, play with them a little bit. Tease them. A lot of fish are like cats and dogs. If you put a sock down in front of Dr. Jones, he could care less. But if you start twitching that sock, he has to go after it. Same with a cat. I'm not a cat person, but I know you put something in front of them like a piece of string. They're just going to go crazy. We already mentioned they're usually around structure. Why? Because I'm going to repeat that. Write it down. One reason people like to fish for largemouth bass is they jump when hooked. They'll also eat smaller fish off your line. Happens out here all the time. If you want that little fish to die and you want to land your bass, well, just drop your rod tip, let some slack in the line. They'll swallow it. They'll rip your fish to pieces too. They have, um, did I even mention this? Vermiform teeth? You know the term bass thumb? That's due to their teeth. Vermiform, is it villiform teeth? Let's look at villiform. Okay, villiform teeth. What do villiform teeth look like? Well, bass have them. They are sharp little needle-like teeth on the top and lower jaw, and they basically hold on to the prey. Oh, look, there's a picture of a snakehead in there. A snakehead? Yeah, northern snakehead's got them too. So that's what, when you put your thumb into a bass's mouth over and over throughout the day, you're going to have what people call bass thumb. It's going to tear the skin off the tips of your thumbs. That's also what they used to hold on to prey um, and just tear stuff up with. And remember last year, client Mike, he was fishing and he caught a herring and then a largemouth bass ate the herring. It happens. You need clear water for this. Uh, okay. How to fish for them. Cast parallel to the edge of a weed bed or drop off. Be the best place and the longest action you can have for your fly. Then cast at right angles to the area, such as in the heart of it. I don't even know what that means. Uh, bass fishermen retrieve their lure slowly and deliberately in a lifelike manner designed to cause fish to strike it. So if that's a bass fisherman using conventional, do the same thing. Slow, slow retrieve uh, with our curly tails and streamers. It's strip, strip, twitch, or just twitch the tip of your rod to move your fly. And if it's uh, other ones, just kind of, it's a lot of the time, it's how you fish the fly, not what fly you use. So I can be fishing a damselfly with a friend. I'm going to catch more fish because I've been fishing the pattern for almost 14 years, and I know how to specifically move that pattern. Or my scorpion bug. Is there a certain way to move your flies to make them bite? I've had clients out all day with Chernobyl ants fishing for bass, and they're not listening to me. I say, just slow switch a centimeter at a time. Just make those rubber legs flutter. And they don't listen to me, and they're getting little bluegills, and they're losing a bunch. True story. This happened last year with two kids and the dad. Then the, the dad's like, all right, show us how to do it. And I, honest to God, pick up the rod. My first cast, 
I twitch it gently enough in a place that we rarely ever catch fish. And you know what? I get about a 14-inch largemouth. Came up and ate it. And the kids, and the dad's like, this is the dad that he's profane. He's like, blah, 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 beep, beep, beep. Kids, he's been telling you to do this for the last three hours. Beep, beep, beep. You didn't listen. And the kid, they're all using profanity. The, the 10-year-old was dropping the F-bomb. Don't pick up a bad cast immediately. So you think you got a bad cast and you're going to pick it up, make a lot of noise and disturb what's ever down there. You never know when there's a fish on its way to eat it or that just happens to be right there that's going to eat it. Example, spin fishing. I was out in my canoe probably summer of 1990 on Lake Audubon and I've got my my pumpkin, not my pumpkin, my watermelon color rooster tail and it's in a tree and I yank it and it flies down, hits the water and I mean, not even instantly, it hits the water and there's a fish on it. Unbelievable. So there may be fish out there. And like, again, sometimes it's how you fish your fly rather than what fly you use. Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation in my notes. Exclamation. All right, techniques. Dead drift means just throw it. If there's a current, just let it drift at the mercy of the current. Or you can just let it blow in the wind. There's popper dropper where you can have a popping bug and then a nymph or another popper or something else behind it. Very effective. Strip, twitch, jerk are active movements. I And there's different situations. So there's lake or uh, still water. There's moving water. And then I like to say what's you know, like um, fast moving. When water is changing on the tide, that's when I like to swing for largemouth bass. Where we swing clousers, damsels, and popsicles through a channel of outgoing tide and you can usually hook up pretty good. Some bass want that slow, delicate presentation. Some bass want a more aggressive, but they don't want to expend too much energy to go after their prey and they don't want to get hurt. They don't want to injure their mouth or their eyes. You know, sharks have a nictitating membrane. They can close their eye quote unquote lid based on not wanting to scratch their eyes. Well, bass don't have that feature. So they probably don't want to do too much aggressive head shaking and chomping and chasing you your fly through brush if they know they're going to hurt themselves. Now let's talk about landing. Rubber bag nets are great. Boga grips are good. You can also lip them. But remember, lipping them can also cause damage based on the fish's size. And I still see this on Facebook, Wire to Fish, um, a lot of other people. They're still posting a lot of Pictures of, you know, four to eight pound largemouth where they're holding them by their lip, which is putting all their body weight on their lip. That'd be like me picking you up by your eyelid. Yeah, it doesn't sound comfortable, does it? No. So when you're holding a largemouth bass, you're probably doing irrevocable, is that the term? Damage to that bass's mouth and might not be able to feed again. It might have a dribble mouth. It might walk around, swim around talking like Bill Murray from uh, Caddyshack. You can also flip bass over onto their backs and kind of tickle their belly. That'll put them to sleep. Yeah, so lipping them, be careful. Um, They're going to flop around, but it also immobilizes them. The best way to immobilize a smaller largemouth bass is to lip them. Now, the end of the podcast. Let's talk about flies. Fly design, fly um, shape, fly action, how to tie them on, etc. And as soon as I finish this, I've got honeydews, but I want to get that that mouse fly or the frog fly done. So when you're fishing bass flies, when you're buying them or tying them or designing them, how do they splat? Do you want a loud splat or a soft splat? Do you want a fast retrieve, slow retrieve? 
How does your fly move through the water? Does it dart back and forth like Bisharat's pole dancer? Does it go up and down, left and right? Does it go in circles? Does it look like injured bait fish? How does it sound? Are there rattles in it? Do you have rubber legs and other material to vibrate the water? What is your fly supposed to mimic? We went through all those different things that bass eat. And if I get my Bass Pro Shops catalog, um, open that in a moment. But um, do you want weed guards? Weed guards are great. They help get your fly out of the weeds. Summertime here, it's almost pointless to fish flies in the weeds. It just doesn't work. You should be able to bounce your flies off of structure like uh, pylons, docks, boats, rock walls, sea walls, etc. And if you're using cork and balsa poppers, they're, they're beautiful. You know, I really appreciate the handcrafting that goes into some of these poppers. But you know what? For my kind of fishing, they don't work. I'll, I'll fish a boogle bug. It's about the hardest commercial popper you can get, but I prefer foam. They don't make the Bob's Lucky Day poppers anymore. So we'll fish those if I like the client enough because I really don't use them for clients. They're more for me. But the scorpion bug is foam and it bounces or the foam depot. These days, your flies are starting to look a lot more like conventional tackle. You're getting more blades on them, more spinners, more tails, more eyeballs. You're using more uh, bass hooks, traditional like spinning hooks. Now, what half the stuff these guys are throwing, I don't know what they're supposed to look like. If an alien wanted to make an alien, that's what these would look like. So let's open Bass Pro Shops. We're going to go through. We have here. Doo, doo, doo. Okay. These are crankbaits with three quarters of the lure is a lip and it's got six hook points. This one has got nine hook points. There's some kind of shad and hula poppers. So crankbaits are just giant with these intricate paintings on them that if this thing's moving at high speed i doubt they're going to see anything even the black dot that's supposed to be a shad this one's crazy it is angry looking this one looks like a crayfish these are all just crankbaits we're always pulling these out of trees now look at this guy this is kevin van dam holding two bass by their lips not good kevin not good there he is again kvd this thing's got crazy blades on it uh, Rapalas. We got Rapalas. Dark brown crawdad. Firefighter. Glass blue shad. Glass glass citrus shad. There's so many intricate things on these that I don't really think the fish sees. Remember, I think bass are dumb and we give them too much credit. Let's skip to the, the soft baits. Look at this is a, without a doubt, this works as well as a real cricket. It's a piece of plastic painted to look like a cricket with a lip on it with six hook points. Doesn't do it for me. And then you have spinners, more Rapalas. Bill Dance, there's a picture of him. He's got awful skin. Now we're into the, the, the Spro and Weedless Frogs. I like these. Jackal, Iobi Frogs, and Strike Kings, and Bass Pro Shops, Kermy Frogs. I like those. I like those for snakeheads. I'm going to start getting these Gamakatsu Frog Hooks. I want to tie my, uh, <clears throat> my new fly on. So these frogs are pretty realistic. This mouse, again, it's got... A cute little pink nose. Its ears are all painted up. He's cute. He's got little eyes. Doesn't matter. Fish aren't going to see that. Umbrella rigs. I only knew about that from listening to Ye Old Brian and Tej's podcast. They don't do it anymore. These giant spinners, which are monstrous with like spoon blades on them. I fished those as a kid. Never had any luck. I only see those work on ESPN when ESPN actually had fishing. 
but rubber skirts. So we're getting a lot of more bass flies with rubber skirts, blades on them, rooster tails, panther martins. Where are these so-called soft plastics? You got, what are these called? Terminator weedless football jigs. You got pork rind things. Okay, let's look at this thing. This is Strike King KVD Chunk Jr. and Senior specifically as a trailer. I think this goes on the end of your hook. It looks like half a lobster. Some of them have little lobster legs. More guys holding big fish up. These worms are crazy. Look at these worms. Some of them are like three feet long. I know fishy eels. All right. Here we have these salamanders. By far the best soft plastic bait I have. I don't get the salamanders. I don't really ever see a salamander swim. I think the flukes work. I've seen those work. Okay, this thing looks like an alien. Hard candy. It's I can't even describe it to you, but it's crazy looking. Here, listen to it. That doesn't really work. Okay, check this thing out. Green purple pumpkin, black flake, Gary Yamamoto custom bait, letter D. It's called the creature. K-R-E-A-T-U-R-E. Look that up. This, look at this thing. Hard candy C. Strike King Rage Tail Smoking Rooster. Heavily ribbed, solid body. With crazy wings and tail make the smoking Rooster a scrumptious mouthful of goodness that Papa Greenback will insist on inhaling. No fly catalog's ever going to describe it as that. Give you that much. Holy shnikes. What is that, guys? This looks like an alien. Louisiana Bug E. Unleash the action of these unique soft baits designed with specific shapes, actions, and colors that will give every angler the edge to catch more fish and release their inner pro. I feel like um, Russell from Up reading his wilderness stuff. Choose from a wide variety of pro-designed baits and scientifically engineered baits with scent and flavor technology. All Havoc series soft baits are fish tested and angler approved. And then the colors are nuts. This thing, it's like a double worm. It's apple pie. See? Net bait dirt dog. Rig through the head or between the legs, plural, for irresistible spinner bait or chatter. But I don't know what chatter bait is. This stuff's crazy. And I pull these out of trees and I'm always like, what the heck are these? Jackal dart hog. The dart hog is highly effective lure that's hand poured with a super soft high float material that attracts bass and makes them hold on longer so you've got some more time to drive the hook home. The high-float plastic keeps the tail up like a crawfish in dense defensive position. The tinted phantom color tail can be split for added versatility. And it just goes on and on. Every page is the best soft plastic worm ever. Crappy jig. Yeah, that's it, man. There's crazy stuff. So where was I? All right, let's talk about actual fly patterns now we have sliders which have the pointed nose going forward sneaky pete dahlberg diver boogle bug and we're talking average of six dollars for those poppers you got boogle bugs mr bob's lucky day the rind frog skipping bugs you got mice hair bugs like the fruit cocktail and taps bug and then you have the Foam Depot, which is mine. The Foam Depot, I'm going to charge you like $2. But everything else, you're running 6 bucks a fly, minimum. Nymphs. Believe it or not, we get a lot of largemouth bass on nymphs. My biggest largemouth bass ever was on my HNIC. We get them on damsel nymphs, of course. We're always getting them on damsel nymphs. Beadhead Prince and Copper Johns are always going to bring them. 
You'd be surprised when we're fishing a scorpion bug, which is you put it down, it covers your palm with a prince nymph dropper, and we'll get a bluegill to come up and it eats. We don't get it to come. It comes up. It eats the popper, and then you get a largemouth bass eat the little guy. It's bizarre, but it happens. And uh, wormies. I was so happy last night. I took a bunch of recycling out and put on my Cabela's waiting jacket and was like, I'll put my hand in my pocket, see what I find. A whole bag of my Spirit River Wormies in pink. Pretty stoked to have found those. Streamers. These are going to be subsurface. Remember, bass love crayfish and other fish. Woolly buggers. Can't go wrong. The Orvis Travis beta bugger. Got to bring that. I'll send Sean Brillen an email today. Sean, my man, bring back the Travis beta bugger. The CK bait fish. Classic Virginia uh, pattern. I tie it differently. I'm going to sneeze now, so hold on. All right, it was a false call and a sneeze, so now I'm super congested, as always. So the CK Baitfish Chuck Craft, you can get the DVD from Urban Angler or Eastern Trophies. It has the ultra suede tail and a white body. Other colors, too, but some of the biggest largemouth bass I've caught in the last year have been on my version of the CK Baitfish. You have Clouser Minnows, and I worked at Breckenridge Outfitters. My boss, Crosby, said the number one bass... Six smallmouth bass fly ever is the Clouser minnow. And I guess Bob Clouser told Davenport that it doesn't matter what color you use for your crystal flash on your Clouser as long as it's gold. My braided worms, my chenille worms, my curly tails are all designed for largemouth bass. I fish for largemouth bass. I've been doing it for 33 years. I know what the fish around here eat, and now I'm starting to throw uh, intruders for them. So my fish catching... Flies are tried and true. I work on them. Work my butt off for them. Half and halves, reapers, helgramites are great. Claw dads. Now, Colby and Brian, they say if they only had one bass fly, it would be the claw dad. Some other ones, you've got the killer-looking baitfish fly from... Who makes that thing? I don't know. How about Blaine Chocolate's Game Changer? I guarantee you some of the biggest bass caught this year are going to be on that Game Changer. It's fantastic. So that sums up nine pages of notes. Hold on a second. The sneeze is coming back. All right. So the sneeze did not happen and we're still having battery issues. There we go. Okay. So in summary, hire me as your bass fishing guide for the summer. Come on out. The boat will be here. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to be fishing for bass starting. Well, the shad, everything's slowed down this year again. So. We'll have to see, but it's going to start up soon and I'll be getting my boat ramp pass and going to go follow up about my George Washington Memorial Parkway permit. Again, I'm the only guide in the DC metro area that, that can legally take you fishing along the tidal Potomac. So in summary, pay attention to weather, water temperature, and water quality. Look for places a bass will hide out and wait for food. Think of a shady criminal hiding in an alley. Where is a sketchy person going to be so they can grab your purse? Sometimes it's not what you fish, but how you fish. Be ethical. Have fun. Debarb your hooks. Wear sunscreen. And buy your bass flies from me. I've got uh, some new ones coming out this year. So the braided worm, the snallygaster is updated. And I'm going to go work on this here uh, frog pattern right now before I mop the floor, vacuum the carpet, and call Easy Pass to check on why they keep double charging me for using the toll road. 
So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. I left out so much, but this literally took me two months to write and research. With that, I thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Give a shout out and applause to producer Jason for cleaning all the audio up and doing everything. You can find him at Freestone Media. Go like him on Facebook. Go find me on Facebook. Do what you have to do. Go have fun. And um, I got two more interviews, maybe three coming up. And then it's uh, Podcast 101. Thanks for downloading. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight, Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.